Fourteen lines of alternating rhyme, which for the benefit of love are writ. Five feet, two syllables apiece, in time when read aloud our heartbeats double-knit. Exalting one's beloved in rhyming verse is but one use of these poetic charms. Morality, advice, or censure terse may also spur the pen to spin such yarns. This is the sonnet, Petrarch's lofty gift, the crafting of which was also Shakespeare's skill. Though fallen out of use with culture's shift, testaments to our ever-living will. All in all, a worthy podcast topic, we Bix shall strive to not sound idiotic. Since brevity is the soul of wit, more of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertainment. And beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Lindsay. <laughs> and I am Aiden. And we are the Bix. Yes, we are. Um, in lieu of a, a typical um, intro essay to our yes. topic, I decided to take the bull by the horns and write my own sonnet for the sonnet episode yes. of our podcast. Um, Aiden, this is only the second time you've heard that, but the first time you heard it, you shook I... your head at me and were just <laughs> so disappointed. No, I was enthralled. It was perfect in every way, Lindsay. <laughs> Uh, especially the ending rhyming couplet. I thought that was a very good Volta there. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I appreciate yeah, that. You yeah. used the terminology that we will be teaching you in this <laughs> podcast episode. Um, uh, yeah, so yes, the sonnet. Um, it, I've never written a sonnet. This was the first, time, the first I've, time I've written, written a sonnet. And um, it gave me quite an appreciation of what a sonnet actually is. I've read now, as I sit here, I have read all of Shakespeare's sonnets. Mm-hmm. Um Billy Shakespeare wrote a whole bunch of sonnets. But I've, having created one myself, I can see how difficult it can be to actually, yeah. and without the benefit of rhymezone.net or whatever the website was that I employed. Um, yeah, Shakespeare did this without a, yeah, the, you know, internet help. Which yeah. is kind of amazing. And yeah, really and is. so it's it's fun to to try try your hand at, at some of the stuff. I challenge all of you to go out and write your own sonnet. Absolutely. Um, which we will teach you how to do as we go through yes. um, our topic uh, dedicated to dedicated sonnets. to sonnets yeah. and going through the the history of the sonnet. What yes. is what is I think that's a the, a good place to start. Yes, let's start there. With what are sonnets? So sonnets are a poetic form that originated in Italy in the late Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Um, sonnet is derived from the Italian word sonetto, which means little song. Yeah. So it was, and it kind of fits into that whole courtly love trope that we think about with the medieval. Um, courtier poets and the the chivalry and everything mm-hmm. like that. So there's a lot of love and romance, and and these poems, these sonnets, kind of fit into that perfectly. Uh, they're comprised of 14 lines with various rhyme schemes, but almost always are written in iambic pentameter. So iambic pentameter, for those of you who forgot, uh, it's the the format that Shakespeare used in all of his yep. poems. That kind of um, five feet of two syllables each with alternating stress and unstressed to make 10 syllables that kind of sound a bit like a heartbeat when you read them in rhythm. Yep. 
So there's a lot of different types of these sonnets, but the most famous ones are the Italian or Petrarchan sonnet, which is kind of the initial uh, uh, form that they took. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then there's the English sonnet, which is also called the Shakespearean sonnet. And that's the one, obviously, we'll be discussing uh, most thoroughly. Um, But there's also two other kind of uh, English sonnets. Uh, one of them is the Spencerian, uh, after Edwin Edmund Spencer, who wrote The Fairy Queen, and Miltonic, after John Milton, who wrote uh, Paradise Lost. So these are big heavyweight poets of around the same time frame as mm-hmm. Shakespeare. Um, and All they, playing with the sonnet yeah, this, form. Yeah, exactly, and structure and everything, and, and coming up with a slightly different way uh, of using the rhyming schemes and adjusting the rhyming schemes to match their, their own kind of idiosyncratic look at, at poetry generally. Uh, so, and then there, there are a couple more that aren't really, we're not going to be talking about them in our episode. We'll link to them in the show notes for this episode, but the Terza Rima and the Kirtle Sonnet, there's also a modern sonnet format that, um, are employed in different places in different ways, slightly differently modified versions of the, the, the standard sonnet. So we'll link to those in our show notes. Um, but for now, we're just going to focus on, mostly we're focusing on just the Shakespearean sonnet, but we thought it would be interesting to kind of go back and look at the three other types of sonnets that were popular around the time. And the first one is this Italian or Petrarchan sonnet, so named for Francesco Petrarca, who was uh, an Italian poet and scholar from the 14th century, whose rediscovery of the works of Cicero which are commonly thought of as the source or inspiration for the entire um, English, or sorry, Italian Renaissance. Mm -hmm. Um, His sonnet consists of 14 lines in iambic pentameter, but arranged in two kind of unequal halves. So there's an opening octave of eight lines and then a closing uh, sestet or six lines. The rhyme scheme went A, B, B, A, for those of you who who know your rhyme schemes from Mm -hmm. English class. A B B A A B B A C D C D C D. So, yeah. um, not quite what we know from Shakespeare's sonnets, but this was the original, the original form. The two halves of the Petrarchan sonnet were designed as an almost like a call and response or a Q and A, uh, where the octave presents a question or a problem, a proposition of some sort, and the sestet gives the answer or the solution to that problem. So, the ninth line of a Petrarchan sonnet was the hinge around that around which that Q&A kind of turned. And it was called the Volta, as Aiden mentioned in our opening uh, dialogue here, uh, or the turn. So it's where the poem kind of turns on itself and and answers the question that it proposed in the beginning. The most famous example, I think, that, that almost everybody would know is The New Colossus by Emma Lazarus. It's the poem that is on the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. And um, should I read it? Go for it. Okay. Uh, So this is Emma Lazarus' poem, The New Colossus. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name mother of exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Um, when you read it as a as a standard poem without the breaks and everything, you kind of lose some of the, the uh, rhyme scheme, but you see fame, land, stand, flame, the first four lines name hand command frame then um 
she poor free shore me door it's it's a standard petrarchan sonnet mm-hmm. beautifully written inspiring mm-hmm. to all of those early immigrants who came across from europe in the uh late 19th early 20th centuries yeah. inspiring to this day mm-hmm. the, the octave so so here the octave sets up the similarities between similarities and differences i guess between the colossus of Rhodes and the statue of liberty um similarities being the size and differences being she's a woman and not a conquering warlord right um she's welcoming as opposed to fearing exactly right and uh and the sestet brings the statue to life and actually puts words into her silent lips which is impossible given that she's a statue but she has she's personified in this poem and it actually has uh words to speak directly to those people who are coming ashore so um kind of a, a different form than petrarch Petrarch would have probably expected. Yeah, yes. The Petrarchan sonnets and, and early Italian sonnets would have been very romantic sonnets, but yes. still. It has a certain romance. It has, it a, has certain, a romance of, yeah, geopolitical strife, I yeah. guess. You know, it's 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 a different topic, but it is still uh, one of land, uh, love for the land, I guess, in this yeah, case. So, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it is, it's definitely a different stretch. Um, so moving on from that to the English and Shakespearean sonnet, we'll just give it like a brief overview of it. Yeah. We won't, we're obviously going to be touching on a couple of them directly. So uh, just to go over, for instance, the, uh, the structure instead of a... Uh, Octet was it an octet. Octet, yeah. Octet, and then a sestet. Uh, there are instead three uh, quatrains, uh, four lines each, and then a final rhyming couplet at the end of it. Uh, and this is the Shakespearean one that all the 154 sonnets that Lindsay uh, has read through thoroughly uh, <laughs> cover. Uh, and the rhyme scheme for that is A B C or A B A B C D C D E F E F G G. Mm-hmm. So there's a new rhyming uh, structure put in every uh, stanza, basically. Um, but they're usually read as as one large stanza. Um, so there's a ton of famous examples, and we'll go through them. Uh, one that Lindsay did want to mention was uh, the prologue for Romeo and Juliet is actually written as one. Yeah, we're going to be getting there in a, in a few episodes so uh we'll talk about it then as well but it does have uh, a change in the volta is especially apparent in this yeah. one because you only get two lines to really kind of uh that's usually when the volta takes place mm-hmm. although in a couple i read i would argue that it perhaps takes place in a different uh quatrain for instance sometimes halfway through there's there's a shift in tone or something like that yeah it's almost like a like a Spencer goes a little bit further and we'll we'll get to that in a bit with like a red herring almost yeah. turn where like you think yeah. that's going to be the turn but it's not quite and then yeah. you get the final turn in the rhyming couplet yeah. at the end um but it's still kind of there there's still that idea of there needing to be a setup and then a fall that that hinges around that turning line which typically takes place in that rhyming couplet yeah double double toil and trouble fire burn and cold and bubble um the third form of sonnet is the Spenserian sonnet, a variant of the Shakespearean sonnet um, that keeps the three quatrain and rhyming couplet structure, but complicates the rhyming scheme. So instead of Incredibly. <laughs> instead of being a, a separate pair of rhyming words or yeah. quartet of rhyming words yeah. for each stanza, um, we go A, B, A, B. Then BCBC, CDCD, and EE. So there's like an interlaced um, flow to the rhyme, which is really difficult having written a just straight up Shakespearean <laughs> sonnet. I can't imagine having to keep going with this rhyme. It's it's a, yeah. a skill I don't have as a, a poet. I'm not a poet at all. No, but that's um, because okay <laughs> that is really difficult. It but. is really difficult. And Spencer would often have that volta, as I said, in around line nine, um, but it would be. Uh, 
like I said, a red herring Volta. The true Volta would be in that that uh, rhyming couplet. couplet yeah. um, so I'm going to read to you one of Spencer's sonnets. It's sonnet 26 from Amoretti. Uh, sweet is the rose, but grows upon a briar. Sweet is the juniper, but sharp his bough. Sweet is the eglantine, but pricketh near. Sweet is the fir bloom, but his branch is rough. Sweet is the cypress, but his rind is tough. Sweet is the nut, but bitter is his pill. Sweet is the broom flower, but yet sour enough. And sweet is moly, but his root is ill. So every sweet with sour is tempered still, that maketh it be coveted the more. For easy things that may be got at will, most sorts of men do set but little store. Why then should I account of this pain, that endless pleasure shall unto me gain? So you can kind of hear it's a, it's a little bit um, tricky because the the word bow doesn't really yeah, rhyme the, with yeah. rough or tough or enough. But been buff or something like maybe, that, maybe the pronunciation changed. Yeah. Um, but still, you can see how that how that rhyme kind of laces through and and kind of takes you a, a through line through the whole mm-hmm. poem itself. Yeah. And you can also see that red herring Volta and the final Volta um, come into play as well. With the the final quatrain lays bare the obvious meaning. We're comparing, um, we're, we're being shown sweet things and sour things. And the two go together in a way that suggests that you need one to have the other. Um, but... The challenge is desirable. It's something we we would want to have. You know, if you're challenged by something sour to get to the sweet, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. The final couplet shows us what he really means, which is that fighting for something makes us enjoy the thing all the more. So pleasure from pain is a worthwhile aim. Um, And that's kind of the the structure of a Spenserian sonnet. Very similar to Shakespeare's, except for that more complicated rhyme scheme. Um, And again, similar kind of subject matter. We're talking about pleasure and pain and emotions and that kind of thing, um, which was fairly standard. Yeah. For I must tell you friendly in your ear, sell when you can, you are not for all markets. So the last version of uh, the English sonnet that we'll talk about is the Miltonic sonnet, uh, and that, again, employs the same structure in the rhyme scheme as the Petrarchan uh, base level sonnet, let's say. Um, there's a Volta at line nine, and it deals with a single event, uh, much like all of the romantic Petrarchan ones uh, did. Um, but they're usually have a bit more of a serious tone to them. Uh, the themes are usually around spirituality or morality or politics. It's not so much just romance and love. On top of that, they also have uh, more of what's called poetic enjambment. 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 <laughs> I just love saying that word. Uh, and it's where a, a phrase or sentence will run through the line. Uh, there's no comma at the end or period or any sort of punctuation at the end of the line. So you just kind of have to read through uh, and place the emphasis. It makes it a little more challenging to read, uh, which is what I'm about to do now, uh, which is uh, Milton's number seven sonnet uh, on his being arrived to the age of 23. So here we go. How soon hath time, the subtle thief of youth, stolen on his wing my three-and-twentieth year? My hasting days fly on with full career, but my late spring no bud or blossom showeth. Perhaps my semblance might deceive the truth, that I to manhood am arrived so near, and inward ripeness doth much less appear, that some more timely happy spirits induth. Yet be it less or more, or soon or slow, it shall be still in strictest measure even, to that same lot, however mean or high, toward which time leads me and the will of heaven. All is, if I have grace to use it so, as ever in my great taskmaster's eye. So in this case, uh, in my poorly performed performance. No, you did wonderfully. The, yeah, this oh, is sure, great. Definitely. <laughs> uh, so here the theme is obviously not 
romantic one at all. It's more about the the passage of time and how uh, little the the poet feels like he has to contribute uh, before his advancing age kind of wipes him out. Um, so, but at the Volta, it's revealed that he's more or less okay with this being the case uh, because he's in the service of the higher power of God. So, if God wills it. It's all good. Go ahead, and and that that uh, shift at the after the eighth line is uh, typically Petrarchan in shape. It just in in theme or subject matter is yeah, it's very different. It yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so the, yeah, those are the four, the three English and the original Petrarchan. I like what you said the base level sonnet that works for me. Yeah. Um, uh, but we're going to be focusing on this. Uh, Shakespearean sonnet and specifically the the 154 sonnets that Shakespeare wrote and which were published in 1609 um, with or without the poet's consent nobody is quite sure yeah. but um, at any rate these are typically attributed to Shakespeare um, so in Shakespeare's case these 154 sonnets all, are all addressed to various unnamed male and female subjects mm-hmm. and they deal with uh, topics of romance and things of that nature like sex and procreation, jealousy, desire, unrequited love, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Um what do we know about the Shakespearean sonnets, Aiden? Uh not much. We know there's 154 of them. Yes. Uh, we also know that uh they are focused mostly on love and matters of the heart. Um, there's a general consensus that uh, the first largest portion of them are directed to who we will call the fair youth. Everybody calls them the fair the youth. The fair youth. So that is generally considered to be a nobleman of some sort. Uh, in uh, There's a lot of uh, thinking that because the other longer poems were dedicated to... Henry Ridsley, the Earl, third Earl of Southampton. The third Earl of Southampton, that he might also actually be the fair youth. Yeah, we're going to talk about of. about this in, in just a second. Uh, and within that, so those the 1 to 126 are generally considered to be directed to the fair youth. Um, there's some variation there, though, because uh, there's also mention of a dark lady somewhere in there as well. Uh, but uh, after that one, uh, from 127 to 154, generally considered to be focused on what everyone calls the dark lady. So that is uh, a love interest of the poets, uh, presumably, uh, because she talks a lot about her eyes and other features. And they're all dark, and that's where the the term the dark lady comes from. So within the first 126 sonnets, there's uh, a group of 17, the first 17 sonnets, which are more or less considered... um, Not considered, they're just focusing on... Well, yeah, they're 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 focusing on the poet convincing, trying to convince this fair youth to marry and procreate because he's so beautiful that there's it's pass them genes on. It's a crime if he doesn't have children. That's right. Um, the the next up to one twenty six deal with a bunch of different ideas. There's uh, a periods of absence where the poet and or the speaker and his fair youth are parted Mm -hmm. um there's jealousies there's a rival poet who comes in at one point and kind of takes the affection of this fair youth away from the the poet slash speaker um and there's a constant through thread of the poet struggling or the speaker struggling to compose poems and sonnets his muse has left him and and fighting against the ravages of time, mm-hmm. which is really a through line through the entirety of the 154 sonnets, yes. if you if you really look for it. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, that's that's kind of takes you through the fair youth poems. The dark lady poems, as Aiden said, um, we don't know who the dark lady was. Uh, there are a lot of guesses yes. about who yeah. she might be. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it's possible that she was physically dark, either dark hair, dark eyes, or dark complexioned. But there's also some hint that maybe it's the darkness of her soul and her yeah. behavior uh, that that might have lent her her name. Yeah. Um, but those are the last the last portion, a, a significantly shorter portion of this sonnet sequence um, are dedicated to the Dark Lady. There are two poems at the end that kind of, uh, some people call them the Greek poems because they deal with um, Cupid and yeah. Roman mythology a little yeah. bit more. So they don't really tie in directly to the Dark Lady itself or herself. They're more um, kind of abstracted ideas about uh, love, love ideals, yeah. the ideals yeah. of love. Uh, so we do know that there were uh, two of these uh, sonnets were published uh, in 1599 in a book called A Passionate Pilgrim, uh, in particular sonnets 138 and 144. Uh, and so because we know that those ones were completed before that point, uh, a lot of people think that the sonnets were probably written in the 1590s generally, uh, likely completed before that, although some stretched out into 1605. Yeah, well, I, I think... Um I've seen some people say as early as 1589 was when the sonnets were initially composed. And there are some some sonnets that feel yeah. like they're a little bit less sophisticated. Yes. So I don't I, I haven't found any clear consensus about timeline, um, or, timeline yeah. or even the order of the poems. They're they're kind of grouped the way they were when they were published. Yes. But as we'll find out soon the publication is is kind of murky so it's not even really clear if that was meant to be if there was a a a structure to these sonnets um or if the they were just kind of put together and this is the accepted format now but it what maybe wasn't the poet's intention for them to be presented in this way and i think we we can see from the publication in the passionate pilgrim um some of these poems probably were meant to be published, but I don't know if if um, the order of the poems has any if the poet has any um, had any say in how how those were presented. Yeah. Because as we know, the published the sonnets were published in 1609 by Thomas Thorpe, but we don't know if Shakespeare authorized that publication. Yeah. The dedication to the to the poem. The dedication of the book of poems was written by Thorpe. It wasn't written by Shakespeare. And so the dedication to Mr. W.H. is kind of, it could be that it was somebody that Thomas Thorpe knew and dedicated the poem to this person, Um, which really, it, it really doesn't matter. The only reason that comes up is because people have tried for so long to to ascribe a person to, to that character yeah. well, um, the characters and the characters in the, the poem yeah. Yeah. and they try and make it fit with Shakespeare's autobiographical stylings and yes. say that this was what some little sort we know of, of his autobiography. Exactly. Autobiography, right? um, so, and, and it is known that publishers would pirate copies of poems, especially poems, and just take them and publish them without the poet's consent. So it is possible that that's what happened in this case, in which case it doesn't matter who WH is. It probably wasn't somebody that Shakespeare knew if that's um, if that's the case. If WH was someone close to the poet, it most likely would have been Henry Ridsley, the mm-hmm. third Earl of Southampton. Um, it could have been William Herbert, the third Earl of Pembroke, who was the person dedicated, the, the first folio was dedicated to him. Yeah. 
Um, William Hart, on the other hand, was Shakespeare's nephew and his male mm. heir. It could have been dedicated to him if this was something that there Shakespeare wrote. If Thorpe wrote the dedication, it's possible that the dedicated... It's possible he dedicated the sonnets to William Hall, a fellow printer. Um, it may have also just been a typo, and he meant mm-hmm. to dedicate them to WSH instead of WH. And uh, But all of this is conjecture, probably not even that important. But it's just something that a lot of people try and, and kind of shoehorn the sonnets and make them autobiographical. And so they, they put a lot of effort into figuring out who WH is. Is that strictly necessary? Um, I guess that's something that we might debate as we get into this episode, I think. Yeah. I think it's not necessary. Aiden? I have different feelings. All right. Yeah. So that might be, uh, look forward to that in in the last segment of our podcast today. Um, The Dark Lady is another subject that comes up a lot. People want to find out who she is or was. Um, Several prominent candidates have been put forth. Amelia Lanier, who was a trailblazing poet uh, in her own right and published a book of poetry during her time in London. Um, she married into the nobility. Her father was uh, Italian nobleman, I, I believe. and um, But she was quite a bit younger than Shakespeare. So if she was involved with him, it would have been scandalous in, in many people's eyes. Um, but she was dark-complexioned and dark-haired mm-hmm. uh, Italian woman. So that might fit the, the criteria for the Dark Lady. Uh, Black Luce, or Lucy Negro, um, was a, a brothel owner who um, was well-known in the theater community in London and so probably would have run in similar circles to Shakespeare. Um, there's no evidence that she was of African descent, but a lot of people like to think of her as as possibly being African, mm. um, living in London. So the Dark Lady would have been, in that case, referring to her complexion. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, no proof or anything of that um, has ever been found. There's also the wife of John Florio, who was a linguist. Um, possibly they were connected. They they would have known each other because their husbands were, or yeah. sorry, their husbands. Shakespeare and, <laughs> Shakespeare and her and husband, her husband yeah. would have been running in, in similar circles as well. Yeah. Uh, they were both also under the patronage of the Third Earl of Southampton. So it's possible that if... He was the fair youth, and Florio was the rival poet, and the wife was the dark lady. We've got this nice little quadrangle going on here. Um, uh, There was also Mary Fitton, who was somebody that uh, came up as... um, uh, a potential potential she was a uh, maid of honor in, in Elizabeth's court and ah, that's right, fell yes. pregnant by the uh, the Earl of Pembroke who yeah. we mentioned earlier and so um, so if WH is yes, yes then, 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 then we have that yeah, other connections being made exactly yeah. Yeah, okay. so none of this has ever been proven I think again it's it's not really necessary to know who the dark lady is Aiden yeah no it's not necessary to enjoy in the poems I'll grant you that uh, the, the larger question of are these sonnets autobiographical is yes. the interesting one. And so there's, uh, again, many schools of thoughts on this. Uh, the general consensus is maybe, maybe Possibly. some of this was. Sure. Um, so uh, there is a bit of evidence to suggest this. Um, and part of it is what Lindsay's already mentioned, the fact that he probably was not involved or does at least doesn't seem to be involved in the publishing of the actual sonnets themselves. Um, so he may have written them for an audience of one yes. <laughs> or, you or know, one three and or the four. Yeah, exactly. Hand, the, hand it to. Exactly. Yes. The, the original target of the, the sonnets. Uh, and so they were never meant to be uh, published. And in which case, uh, why not make them 
mm-hmm. might not read them as autobiographical, I guess is the way. Um, but to counteract that, there's just so little known about Shakespeare's life generally um, that it's really hard to ascribe specific meaning to any of the the sonnets and to uh, drive in and say, yes, this one is autobiographical. It's referring to person X. And it also feels a lot like people take the the sonnets and kind of reverse engineer a backstory for Shakespeare. Yeah. And they th- in that way, they make them autobiographical. And they say, well, now here's this story. Shakespeare goes off to London mm-hmm. and he meets, he, he he's a patron or is, has a patron who he falls in love with and um implores him to get married and have babies but then you know maybe the love is requited or unrequited or yeah. goes through roller coasters and then he there's a rival poet who comes in and and then Shakespeare obviously had an affair with this dark lady while he was away from his wife and they try and make a story a, a kind of a, yeah. a biography of Shakespeare out of the sonnets which I think is a little bit backwards since we just don't know yeah. but it's. I, I guess it's doing no one any harm if we yeah, don't know and the guy's been dead. If you want to build dead. a fan fiction out of something, <laughs> sure. you might as well use the sonnets. That's that's totally fair. It might be you know using a lot of the plays, which is which are based on things that we know Shakespeare never did, right. like fight in a war in France, for instance. Sure. But he wrote or Henry the Sixth nonetheless. Or the time yeah. of Antony and Cleopatra. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so um, we're going to throw up a bunch of links to some of the stuff that we've talked about um, in our show description as well. So check that out if you're interested in learning a little bit more. Um, at this point, I think we're going to jump right into the the sonnets themselves. Yeah. Um, we each took... I, I ended up reading all of them because I just in the interest of thoroughness. Um, but on paper, I am... I'm taking the even-numbered yes. sonnets. Aiden took the odd-numbered sonnets. I took the oddities. And we chose um, poems that kind of fit into those three categories that we mm-hmm. mentioned earlier. Um, the sonnets 1 through 17 or 18, uh, up to 126, so the from there to 126, and then the Dark Lady poems yeah. at the end. Um, we, we each yeah. chose about four poems, yep. I think. One from the beginning, one from the end, and two from the middle. Yeah, to specifically go through and talk a bit yeah. specifically about as as examples of, of what the sonnets are like and how we kind of looked at them and, and uh, generally analyze and think about them. And I think it's important to note that we're not going to... Um, just look at these in terms of where they fit in the sonnet structure, but also look at them in kind of a new criticism way and and really look at the poems themselves as standalone objects because mm-hmm. it is important as we're both writers. Um, it is nice to to look at writing and look at what the words are doing and what the the figures of speech are how how those are being employed. Yeah. Um, I think that's more important than trying to fit them into some overarching, yeah, structure, structure or, or to tell a narrative uh, as we just made fun of. Yes, so. exactly. <laughs> so Aiden, why don't you go first? Because I think mine, I chose Sonnet 18 as my first one, which doesn't yeah. really fit our rules, but... Yeah, you already broke the rules. That's I did, good, Lindsay. Yeah. Uh, so mine does fit in our structure. Uh, it's Sonnet 15, although this one, as uh, we talked about, you'll see that it doesn't quite fit. The first 14, 15, well, not 15, let's say the first 14 are, are very... Uh, typical in a sense that they literally say here's all you're so young and beautiful you need to make babies mm-hmm. here's all the reasons why that's it that's that's all the first 14 really say the 15th though is is slightly different so i will read it to begin when i consider everything that grows holds in perfection but a little moment that this huge stage presenteth not but shows whereon the stars in secret influence comment 
when I perceived that men as plants increase, cheered and checked even by the self-same sky, vaunt in their youthful sap, at height decrease, and wear their brave state out of memory. Then the conceit of this inconstant stay sets you most rich in youth before my sight, where wasteful time debateth with decay, to change your day of youth to sullied night. And all in war with time for love of you, as he takes from you, I engraft you anew. Mm. So this one is typical in that it's focused on a lot of the same kind of ideas and, and uh, it's preoccupied with time and the ravages of time that are going to come and ruin this young man's beauty. Um, but here he doesn't, his solution is not making babies. It's in that, in the Volta, in those last, in that couplet. Um, As he takes from you, time is taken away from the fair youth. I engraft you and you knew. So it's, he's saying that in this poem, uh, I am creating you anew forever. Uh, I am capturing your beauty in the poetry itself, and that will live uh, for time immemorial uh, into eternity because it the words themselves don't age, and so they've mm. captured your beauty. And the previous fourteen that I've been talking uh, that I've written for you, and this one are all going to capture that beauty forever. So you don't really have to worry quite as much. And right. it is it is a tonal shift from the previous 14, which was just like, get busy with it. You know, we, we got to start making babies. <laughs> you owe it to yourself. You're going to be worm's meat otherwise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so this one was a nice little change. And I, I, I liked it for that reason. Um, and it, it's still, but it still uh, feels very much like those other early sonnets, uh, especially in the use of very flowery, soft language about... Um, yeah, you know, plants increasing, youthful sap. You know, there's 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 just a, a certain vitality and and earthiness to the language. Well, and I think what struck me in reading this is that it does kind of compare a person's aging to nature's aging and how nature decays, but you don't have to because I'm gonna yeah memorialize you in this way. Yeah. Um, it's it's like. It, it's a gift that a poet has that that nature doesn't have. And and in the previous poems, when he has spent so much time talking about how time is creeping and you are going to lose out, and then that's going to be a crime to to not have more of you. Yeah. Um, it's almost like he's given up hope that this guy is ever going to do it. So yeah. he's like, well, I might as well, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess the poems will be your children, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is cool. I think that, but it, it does, it it is something that as writers, you hope that your words will live on after you've gone. Well, and I mean, in this way, also memorialize the person that you are writing about. And, and it's kind of a, a, a sideways allusion to uh, Achilles and the Iliad, you know, right. and the Odyssey, you know, immortalizing these figures uh, forever, even though, especially in Achilles you know case he was going to die in the war but he'd live on forever through the words and his deeds Mm -hmm. so here this man's beauty is what's going to live forever so it it was it's kind of a it harks back to a petrarchan sonnet in in some ways in in that respect so um, i just like that um sonnet 18 is a nice uh continuation of Aiden what you've been talking about um it's one of the more famous sonnets um begins shall I compare thee to a summer's day everybody knows this line Mm -hmm. um so and again I'll read it through but just listen to the a lot of similar language and and similar ideas um kind of pushing through here shall I compare thee to a summer's day thou art more lovely and more temperate rough winds do shake the darling buds of May and, and summer's lease hath all too short a date Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declines by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest. 
nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade when in eternal lines to time thou growest so long as men can breathe or eyes to see so long lives this and this gives life to thee so again it's just saying you know yes summer's beautiful and normally a poet would compare their beloved to the, the their eyes are like the sun and their skin is like blah 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 or whatever yeah. um but here he's saying summer doesn't hold a candle to you because summer will fade and sometimes it's too hot and and these things die and decay but you will live eternally yeah. this gives life to thee this being the poem gives life to you for again time immemorial mm-hmm. so yeah it's a nice shift i guess away from this imploring the the fair youth to um procreate in a biological sense and it's almost like the poet slash speaker has said i i don't trust that this is going to happen so here are what you will be get yeah this is what will will make you live forever and and it's effective because that is the most famous of shakespeare sonnets i yeah, think absolutely. And, and it's it is kind of uh it's fitting that the one that most focuses on the physical attributes in comparison to traditional literary tropes of, you know, nature and so forth um, is the one that's kind of lasted the longest and most sticks in the mind of, of people around the world. Right. And they think about Shakespearean poetry, right? So it's just, you know, it was effective. It was effective. Well done Shakespeare. Um, (laughs) As long as men have eyes, uh, we're reading this poem and we're forcing it on, you know, high school students. So there's that too. Your next poem. Yes, I decided on uh, not going too far forward. uh, Number 27. Oh, okay. Uh, So this one is, again, focused on the fair youth. um, And this one I I particularly like, not because it's different, but because it's very uh, accessible and approachable. So Mm. I'll read it to start. Mm -hmm. Weary with toil, I haste me to my bed. The dear repose for limbs with travel tired. But then begins a journey in my head to work my mind when body's works expired. For then my thoughts, from far where I abide, intend a zealous pilgrimage to thee, and keep my drooping eyelids open wide, looking on darkness which the blind do see. Save that my soul's imaginary sight presents thy shadow to my sightless view, which, like a jewel hung in ghastly night, makes black night beauteous and her old face new. Lo, thus, by day my limbs, by night my mind, for thee and for myself no quiet find. Hmm. So it's a very nice... uh, it's a very nice uh, depiction of you got somebody on the mind and when you go to bed, you can't sleep because their face is imprinted on your brain uh, and you just can't you can't sleep. There's no rest for the weary, even though you're exhausted. You've had a full day, uh, but you're in love <laughs> in one shape or form or another. Uh, you are in love with this person who you're who you've uh, got on the brain. And it's just it's a very lovely poem. There's a lot of like nice personifications about night being an old lady Um and then, you know, giving the bo- the body and the soul kind of uh, physical characteristics mm-hmm. like sight and memory and uh, sources of light. Um, and there's a lot of this kind of circling around uh, uh, shadowy imagery. Uh, there's a lot of shadows in this poem. Uh, and it's it, it kind of sets you in that mood of being in that dark, restful place. Mm-hmm. Uh where the, but there's somehow more shadows, which means there's light sources, which means yes. you're staying awake, and so it all just kind of ties together nicely in that way. It feels almost like you're you're. Uh it's a it's a really good depiction of what you actually go through when yeah. you're so even in a, to a modern reader there's a, a sense of um, relatability to yeah, it yeah exactly because it depicts and writes the the writing depicts what the person goes through yeah which is really, really well. quite yeah. effective 
Linz, what's your next one? Um, mine does jump quite far ahead. It's okay. on at 94. Okay. Um, so yeah, slightly different um, in tone and in subject matter. It's still addressing the fair youth, but kind of talks a bit about um, unfaithfulness on the part of the fair youth who mm. has done some wrong to the to the poet. Okay. Um, so I'll just go ahead and start reading it. They that have power to hurt and will do none, that do not do the thing they most do show, who, moving others, are themselves as stone, unmoved, cold, and to temptation slow. They rightly do inherit heaven's graces and husband nature's riches from expense. They are the lords and owners of their faces, others but stewards of their excellence. The summer's flower is to the summer sweet, though to itself it only live and die. But if that flower with base infection meet... The basest weed outbraves his dignity. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. And I think what's interesting about this is that it takes a lot of those very typical um, sonnet tropes, talking about flowers, talking about Mm -hmm. summer, talking about nature, comparing it to people and personifying them in a way that you you get the sense of the the poet's depth of feeling for the person and it kind of turns it on his head because it's saying that um these things can become rank these beautiful things that we hold dear don't always produce beauty yeah the lily when it's rotten smells worse than the weeds that we would throw away we would keep the lily but we would throw away the weeds that are actually better and it's almost like the a lot of people will will look, read this and say that the friend the the um the fairy youth has done done him dirty yeah, let's say in some form and uh he's been false at heart in some way um even though his appearance would be faithful um underneath that we the the poet slash speaker knows that he hasn't been true um yeah so i think it's just um and it's interesting that the people who are most true to themselves says the speaker um are the ones who will inherit heaven they're the ones who have all the grace and and the people who are um two-faced about it are the ones who, you know, even though they look fairer possibly than the others, they they shouldn't, they don't deserve these great yeah. these great rewards. Yeah. Um. So it really signals to me kind of the depth of betrayal almost that the poet feels, even though he can't help himself, he still has to, um, he still has to write to this person, in a, in kind of a. It's like he's subtweeting him, you know? It's like he's saying, I'm not I'm not really going to talk directly to you, but this is yeah. about you. Yeah. <laughs> um so this is this is his way of of he has no other way, no other outlet to say I'm hurt by this. Um so I'm going to imagine this situation in which you are this beautiful lily that's gone rotten at your core and uh and therefore you have no no more worth to me. Uh, I've been burned once, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yep. I really like this poem. I think that it it's because it's so different and it takes kind of the tropes of the Petrarchan um, love sonnet and kind of turns them on its head. I think that's one of the great um, it's one of the great ways that the sonnets are so effective is yeah. that yep. they they kind of play with the conventions. And that leads happily into uh, my next one, because literally it is the next one. Oh. I went to number 95. Oh, wow. Yeah, we didn't plan this in advance <laughs> we didn't at all, know. Uh, as it shows, because mine <laughs> touches on a lot of similar points. But um, I'll start with reading it. Mm-hmm. 
How sweet and lovely dost thou make the shame, which, like a canker in the fragrant rose, doth spot the beauty of thy budding name. Oh, in what sweets dost thou thy sins enclose, that tongue that tells the story of thy days, making lascivious comments on thy sport, cannot dispraise, but in a kind of praise, naming thy name blesses an ill report. Oh, what a mansion have those vices got, which for their habitation chose out thee, where beauty's veil doth cover every blot, and all things turn to fair that eyes can see. Take heed, dear heart, of this large privilege. The hardest knife ill-used doth lose his edge. Hmm. So it's, it's again, very similar uh, because it is talking about, you know, there's... It's appearance versus reality, really, mm-hmm. is, is kind of what it gets down to, is that, you know, they, there's you can talk all you want about uh, the appearance of this, uh, your name, uh, but it, it will, it its very appearance, uh, to me, blesses a, an ill report. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's, I, when I look at you now, I can no longer see the beauty um, and the the fragrant rose. I spot the canker that's, that's lying right. underneath, right? And... Uh, it's it, this one's a little more I'd say confrontational. It's a little more warning. Yeah, uh, it's directed directly to the the fair youth, um, and I just love the again the floral symbolism. Uh, the use of the word lascivious will always earn a place in my heart. <laughs> um, and it, it this one does question me, and the fact that it came up in '94 as well makes me wonder like what happened here. This one again, this is part of why I personally feel like the uh, there might be a bit more autobiographical to uh, mm. thrust this because they do seem to be uh, so closely uh, tied together that there, there there are these consistent characters that, that come across. Um, but also I, I, I love how it's kind of paving the way for some of what we'll see in the, the, the Dark Lady uh, right. poems as well with uh, combining the ugly with the beautiful right. and having a bit more of a mixed uh, sensation that you take from the poem. It's mm-hmm. not so much a clear black and white. It's my mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Yes. But I still love her. Yeah. You know, and, and this is kind of getting to this. Yes, you're a rose and I see that, but I also see the canker. Right. So I want to, you know, uh, deal with both aspects. One thing that um, is interesting about this sonnet is that it comes after a series of sonnets where um, there's there's some scandal that has been plaguing the fair youth. Yes. And previously... Um, the speaker poet has um, treated that as slander, as untrue. But it's almost like by this point, whatever that was has been proven true. Yeah. And now it's affecting the the poet himself or the speaker himself. And that's what he's now seeing is the ugly truth behind the rumors that he'd previously defended Ignored, yeah. his, his lover against. Um, which is, it, it's it kind of lends a different shade to it because it does feel like... Um, it's a bigger, um, it, it's a, it's more of an insult when you've believed the person and you've defended them mm-hmm. and then you find out that, that you were led astray. Yeah. Um, so you kind of almost, you're like, yeah, like you, you, I want to take the poet's side on this part. I want to yeah. take the, the speaker's yeah. side because, yeah. um, that, that's just shitty, you yeah, know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's rough. Um, so my next poem actually is just three sonnets later, sonnet ninety eight. Oh, okay. Um, at this point, the the um, whatever has been troubling the uh, the poet speaker regarding the fair youth has disappeared, and now we're dealing with um, an absence, an absence 
between the two. So they, they've, been, they've spent some time apart. Um, possibly because of this, if we're reading this linearly and we want to put a storyline to it, but, um, but this absence is... Uh, well, well, I'll just read it and you'll see what, mm-hmm. what happens here. Sonnet 98. From you have I been absent in the spring, when proud pied April, dressed in all his trim, hath put a spirit of youth in everything. That heavy Saturn laughed and leaped with him. Yet nor the lays of birds, nor the sweet smell of different flowers in odor and in hue, could make me any summer story tell, or from their proud lap pluck them where they grew. Nor did I wonder at the lily's white, nor praise the deep vermilion of the rose. They were but sweet, but figures of delight, drawn after you, you pattern of all those. Yet seemed it winter still, and you away, as with your shadow, I with these did play. Mm. What struck me is just that that final couplet. Yeah. Um, that here we're being presented with uh, again a picture of perfect beauty, springtime, renewal, youth, and beauty, and it's as if I'm playing with your shadow. Mm-hmm. Like all I can think about, it's still winter in my heart. It's still winter everywhere because you're not here. You who are the original beautiful thing. And all of these are just copies. These are just your shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I'm playing with. It's it's such a... There's like a depth of um, longing, I guess, when you when you look at it that way. And you have that... Um, the, just that notion of, of playing with a shadow, I think, is what really um, struck me. Because it feels like something very... You can't play with a shadow. It's 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 not it's not present. It's not tangible. It's not tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, so so of course, like lilies and and roses and the 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 springtime, it's not tangible to him. It's not there because you're not there. Yeah. Um, just like a shadow is the absence of a person. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. I think that, that it's just it's really no, powerful. A, it is. It's powerful writing. It's very very resting even to this day. Definitely. It is for all, all I have. He'll eat me out of house and home. Um, so now we're heading into the Dark Lady poems, yeah, am I correct? Yeah. Okay. So, Aiden, what number did you go for first? I did 145. Okay. Can I go first because mine's 130? Yeah, sure. Let's okay. go in order. Um, so, yes, I chose Sonnet 130, which is um, kind of an it, – it's a, another one of Shakespeare's more famous poems, um, sonnets. But um, it's related to a couple of other – poems that uh precede it and then follow it um one sonnet 127 is where we're first kind of introduced to the the dark lady Mm -hmm. and he describes her as being dark and this is where the idea of her dark complexion comes in because he mentions her being dark complexion dark hair dark eyes everything's dark um but he says that that is it's not the standard of beauty that elizabethans um believed in yeah but he doesn't care yeah so it's important to have that foregrounded because Sonnet 130 kind of plays with that plays with that a yeah. lot. Yeah. Um, Sonnet 138, which comes after that, is one of the ones that was in The Passionate Pilgrim, was published mm, yeah. in 1599. And, um, and it kind of, it, it's one of my favorite sonnets generally just because of the way it's so truthful in the way that um, it approaches love between mature two mature people mm-hmm. so i don't want to get into that too much just because i want to read sonnet 130 but maybe if you'll let me i'll do 138 after no 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 you're stuck. you're stuck you've I'm already done more than i have so come on hurry up 
Okay, sun at 1.30. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked, red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasant sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet by heaven I think my love is rare, as any she belied with false compare. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it on the surface feels very Harsh. insulting. Yeah. <laughs> because it takes that um, ideal of the poet... Um, the, the object of affection of the poet as being this beautiful, beyond compare beauty um, whose eyes are exactly like the sun and yeah. whose lips are as red as the rose and whose skin is white as snow. Comparable to a summer day. Exactly. Yes. And this, this woman is none of those things. And yet he still loves her. Mm-hmm. And where Sonnet 138 takes it a little further and says, um, she's nothing special but neither am I. Yeah. And at this point in, in time, mm. I'm an old man and I have nothing to offer. She knows that. She's been unfaithful to me. I know that. We're going to lie to each other and still kind of fall into this comfortable space with one another. Yeah. That feels very much like um, just a maturing of the love that mm-hmm. we see in the fair youth poems, the 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 poet speaker is unable to be apart from their love, their beloved and um, everything they do is exalted and perfect. And here with this dark lady, it's like, it doesn't have to be perfect to be acceptable, to be um, not even, it's not like he's striving for more. No, this is, this is fine. I'm okay with this. It's not only fine. It's still, it's still, it's love, you know, it's it's almost like a more real love because it's not been idealized. It is more true than what a poet would write about love because she's not perfect, but I still, but but loving her is, makes her more. And this is, this is where, you know, love is blind really comes into play because, because you talk about love being blind, but when you have two gorgeous, young, nubile Hollywood actors on screen declaring that love is blind, it doesn't ring true. But when you have, you know, people of advancing age who aren't in the prime of youth and have all sorts of problems, both physical and emotional and psychological. <laughs> yeah. Um, when still they, in love. When they still yeah. come together and they're, even if it's not love, even if it's just like, I'm comfortable with you and we can be together for this night, for this time, and that's fine. Um, there's something very comforting about that mm-hmm. to me as a reader. And I think that that speaks to um the, the maturity of the poet and the maturity of, of his audience, yeah. which in this case is maybe just this one older dark lady or whoever he intended this this poem for. Yeah. So I like that one. Yours? My The final one we'll look at today is Sonnet 145. Okay. Uh, let, I'll, just, I'll just dive in. Just dive in. See what you think. Those lips that love's own hand did make breathed forth the sound that said, I hate. Mm. To me that languished for her sake, but when she saw my woeful state, 
Straight in her heart did mercy come, chiding that tongue that ever sweet was used in giving gentle doom, and taught it thus anew to greet. I hate, she altered with an end, that followed it as gentle day, doth follow night, who like a fiend, from heaven to hell is flown away. I hate, from hate away she threw, and saved my life, saying, not you. <laughs> so that was that was my favorite uh, Volta. It was my favorite turn, because this entire poem is about like the anxiety that comes mm-hmm. from like saying I hate and then there's that there's that momentary pause uh as you know she's looking at him and he's looking at her and it's like you hate me and no it's I hate not you but this entire poem exists in that one brief uh moment Breath, between almost. yeah exactly between those four words in the middle of them the before the not you is this whole thing that he goes through um and it's 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 very Again, kind of florid, and there's there's very soft language mm-hmm. uh, throughout, um, and I I found it really interesting. There's there's almost like a theme to this poem, uh, as brief as it is. It's it's really centers around this one word, mercy. Mm-hmm. It is the entire poem is composed of merciful words, and it's it's centered on the mercy that the not you yeah. provides at the end. But everything is kind of set up around that. So. Um, there's words that are kind of required for mercy, like doom and end. And then there's there's the softer words that imply mercy, like gentle and heaven and, uh, it, you know, all those kind of words mm-hmm. all kind of center around this 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 one central theme of mercy, which is only mentioned once in, mm-hmm. I think, the fifth line. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yet that is what the poem becomes about, which is about this extra these extra two words granting mercy to the poet. Um, and I think it's just it's just a brilliant little poem about um how much when you love someone how much two little extra words can make right yeah the the difference that it can make in 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 someone's understanding and what's really fascinating about this poem because you're right i love that voltage it's probably one of my favorites um it's not written in iambic pentameter yeah it's written in tetrameter yeah um it feels like um this is one of the poems that presents some um trouble i guess for scholars because it feels like it's either a uh, less sophisticated type of poem so maybe it was written quite a bit earlier um maybe 10 years before the the poem or 20 years before the poems were published um or it wasn't even written by shakespeare yeah there's some people some people think that it might have been written by southampton himself yeah um but it doesn't matter because it's still a fun um accessible and as aiden said it's it's the poem itself is built in a heartbeat in a, in a single moment, the entire poem exists between two words. And I think that is, you're right. It's just so, um, captivating. Yeah. So it's, it's just, it's really fun. It is fun. It is really fun. I love it. If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. Uh, so for longtime listeners, uh, we've been calling this marriage counseling for the last several years. It's kind years. of a placeholder. Yeah, we never really decided. Um, but then we found, you know, we've been using this quote to kind of lead into this uh, for the last couple episodes. Uh, Let us resume our ancient bickering, I think is the line yeah. from Shakespeare. So that's we're now calling it ancient bickering. Ancient bickering. Uh, which is very astute for us because it's been ongoing since, you know, we met. Uh, <laughs> and this uh, episode's topic is around that question of uh, autobiographical, the autobiographical nature, or not, of the sonnets. And in particular, do you think it's necessary to read them uh, as an autobiographical source? Uh, Lindsay, 
I'm going to let you go first because you're going to lose this debate <laughs> and I just feel pity for you. So go ahead. Uh, I do not think that it is necessary to read these autobiographically. Uh, of course. Um, I think that the poems exist on their own as these little bite-sized nuggets of, of literary goodness that um, we want to, as a culture, as a, a society, we want our authors present in the works we read. Um, but I think post-modernist, post-structuralist literary theory has really done away with the idea of, of requiring that author um, to be present in what we're reading. And I really like that idea because I think that um, as a writer, I write a lot of things that I, I don't, I'm not personally putting myself into. I'm not writing autobiographically every time I put pen to paper. So I like the idea of authors um, being able to separate themselves from their work. And I think it's necessary, especially in this age of, of problematic directors and writers and needing to separate as much as you can the work from the author is kind of crucial. So I don't, I don't like forcing the autobiographical mm. nature of the yeah. poems onto the poems, if that makes yeah. sense. I think there are certainly some things that feel like they ring true. But again, with Shakespeare, we don't know. We're making it up. It's all fanfic at this point. So I think where those things do kind of fit in, we talk when when the the poet speaker says he's having trouble writing, his muse has gone away. I'll allow it. That does sound like something a writer would say. Yeah. Um, did he necessarily have a, a sort of weirdly dissatisfactory menage a trois with the rival poet and the dark lady? I don't think that's that has any kind of, you know, wow. or 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 with the young lover and the rival poet or the dark lady or whatever like does that does that matter i don't think it it's necessary i think when people try and and read that into it they're projecting and looking for meaning where there sure, isn't sure and i think that you can absolutely read these poems without any of that and still get um some truth some nuggets of truth about the human condition which is what i look for in shakespeare so sure. that's my answer. Well, and I, I don't disagree with that last sentiment. That Huzzah! I don't, I don't think you need it. I win. No, because you lose. Because the whole point <laughs> of this podcast has been to talk about the signs and how yeah. we talked about them through dark ladies and fair youths yeah. and all these things. Um, and the fact that they are such persistent, um, continual presences in the sonnets leads me to believe that this... Like, I agree. You can read an individual sonnet on its own. You cannot read 154 of them and not take away that there were some recurring characters. And if there are recurring characters that are addressed by the, the poet um, and they're for a very specific reason that recurs over and over again, like the fair youth and, you know, having to make babies and stuff, I think it's fair to say that was a real sentiment that was shared with a real person. I'm not saying necessarily that you have to draw from that real expression an entire biography of Shakespeare based on that. You know, it's it's kind of like the the movie that we saw, uh, All Is True, mm. where they took the one biographical detail that we do know about Shakespeare, which is that his son Hamnet died, and they made a whole movie about, you know, where his whole life revolved around that one death. Because it's literally all we know. We don't that actually know. That was Shakespeare's know. Volta. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. Uh, and I felt that was a little weak. And I, I I can see not 
you know, I can see if you, you tried to do that here and say like, well, his fair lady was obviously the most important female lover he ever Dark had. Dark lady. Do, I, what do I, I always get that messed up. Uh, and then, or the, uh, you fair know, the fair youth. youth is his patron and his lover and his best friend and his confidant and his, mm. you know, uh, rival with you know the dark lady these are all like that that's going way too far yeah um but the same point to say that this was not this doesn't have a deeply personal feel to the poetry itself and that the recurring characters that do come back out of this uh exist and therefore are probably factors in the poet's life Mm. i think is fair and the fact that we don't know whether shakespeare signed off on the publication of the the poems uh is another factor in my belief that these may have very well been personal sonnets that were written they were they were little diddlies that he scratched out between you know closing closures of the playhouse and or he had a big hit and he went to the brothel and saw a dark lady and he's like yeah i'm writing her a sonnet so that she'll (laughs) she'll get with me you know that kind of thing right? right there's there's that kind of feel throughout um and i i think it's it's not necessary that you have to uh do that to appreciate them but i don't think it's possible to read them all without uh seeing the consistency of some sort of narrative arc of the poet's existence not necessarily of his whole life but of his poetic musings there is there are themes there are constructs there's there's as you mentioned in one of yours you know like well the 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 fair youth was had been accused of something three poems earlier mm. and now here he's accepting it even in your own analysis Lindsay, you've kind of said that this is a real thing that happens when you read them is that you you kind of create the characters and you follow through on them now th- whether or not they were real and absolutely you know the fair youth was william whatever of whatever maybe maybe not but was it something that meant something to the poet? I think so. I think what I don't disagree with you on everything, but I think that you're conflating the poet as a person yeah. who's writing the poem and the speaker of the poem. I was yeah. very careful to make nope, sure that I fair. said poet slash speaker when yeah. I was going through the poems today mm-hmm. because I don't think you can always absolutely read the poet's intention into every line that they write. I think that would be fallacious. Yeah. But um, certainly certain things could inspire other things. Well, And And I think that's that's something I wanted to ask you as a writer then, because if you're saying that everything that is... And I will not disagree with you that there are definitely characters present throughout the sonnets. And the fact that they go through defined arcs and have growth... And things happen off screen. It feels very much like a constructed reality that we're playing with here. Um, But so do the plays. Mm -hmm. So so I would struggle to find anybody who says without a shadow of a doubt that Midsummer Night's Dream is is totally autobiographical because it's the only play that we know of that has no source Mm -hmm. or one of the only. Yeah, one of the few besides that. It was a totally original play. Um, So Oberon and Titania and Bottom and Peas Blossom are all real people. Yeah. No, no. (laughs) Or inspired by real people, I think is a stretch. I think that that 
that implies that writers have no imagination. They only can draw on what is immediately present in their realities for the things they're writing. Now, granted, sonnets are more personal in nature, so it's possible that these are these are it's it's almost probable that these are um, heavily influenced by something that's happening in the poet's life. Well, and and, and that's that's my problem with. That's my problem with not allowing them to be autobiographical is that uh, they, they, there are no characters. There's no, there's 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 such a limited set of characters within the poems that they are, that they feel incredibly personal, even when because there's only at most three characters. There's the poet, its voice, if you want to say. Mm-hmm. There's an object of affection, and occasionally there's a third body that's right. interfered in some way. Yeah. Uh, whether it's uh, whether it's time or it's usually like some sort of the na- rival natural, poet or yeah, something whatever. like that, right? Um, whereas the the plays are inventions of mm-hmm. um, multiple characters interacting and forces mm-hmm. and people and motives. There's there's no motives ascribed to anybody in any of these poems. It is simply. Uh, except for perhaps the poet's own. So that's, again, it, it really helps make it feel like there's, like there, this is a personal expression. Um, I mean, absolutely. I, I do disagree with your other point as well, Lindsay, that the, the author's dead and, you know, <laughs> we don't need to worry about him. Cause I, I just, I, <laughs> there's nothing I've ever written where I'm not like, yeah, I wrote that. You know, because no, I, that's not what I mean. I'm no, just, no, but it's, no, but that's that's where that line of thinking heads. Is that no, eventually? No, it doesn't. It's saying that that what the poet intended, what the writer intended, is what absolutely there's one truth behind everything that's ever been created, and that's what the writer intended. That's what it, that's what the the death of the author is trying to get at. Is that is that yeah. you, There's no there are mul- a multitude of meanings here. So it's saying if you if you don't believe that the author is dead, then you keep searching for the one truth in this 154 poems yeah and that one truth is only what shakespeare felt and if you ascribe or if you believe in the death of the author then you can find multiple meanings and then you can say well yeah this was inspired by this or yes this was possibly a playwright poet who was playing with the structure of a very well-known and well-established narrative form which mm-hmm. is the the poem the sonnet um to create a storyline that is you know like like those novels you read that are just diary entries you know and you have to piece together the story based yeah. on one-sided conversations or yeah. monologues right yeah. why couldn't this be that why yeah. we know that shakespeare was interested at this time he's writing love's labor's lost um which we just did an episode on that is is playing with the structure of plays. Yeah. Why couldn't he be playing with sonnets here too? Why why does this necessarily have to be pointing outward from the poems to specific people? That's all I'm saying. Yeah, no, and that, and that's that's fair. I guess I grant you that, which is kind of the point of the argument. So I guess I've conceded <laughs> the argument in this case. Uh, but I, I I don't. While it's not necessary, um, I think it's very probable. Let me, maybe maybe okay. I'll just put it that way. Okay. I think I think it's. I think it's a good way of approaching the sonnets, and that, that the fact that that's how we approach sonnets, I think, is yeah. is a is a pretty good case for that because it just works. It it helps. Like I don't think you have to tie it down to individual characters or anything right. like that, but you know, here are these uh, here are these general uh, pieces and elements that move through the different sonnets. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a fair youth. There's a dark lady. There's uh, a love. There's heartbreak. There's time. There's procreation. These are the themes that are built yeah. throughout. Um, and there's no indication 
really that they aren't personal and that they aren't in some way uh, autobiographical. They may not be an exact autobiography, but there, there are elements that feel autobiographical. A, a reflection of, of elements of the poet's own life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I can, sure. I can see that. Yeah, okay. So, or Is this a draw? Are we calling this a draw? Sure, let's call it a draw. I'll sure. take that. You'll I'm take it. pretty sure I lost. So yeah, no, it's a draw. It's good. <laughs> Excellent. What's mine is yours. And what is yours is mine. Uh, so what's next for us on the the Bix pod? Uh, next up is Richard II. Yeah, uh, right. Which is one of the lesser produced plays, I would say. Lesser uh, known plays almost. Definitely. Uh, it's kind of a return to the Wars of the Roses a bit. Well, but but yeah, the origins of the, the origins. Wars of the Roses. Well, yeah, we talked about a lot in our uh, Wars of the Roses episodes was... Um, you know, well, this all started because they deposed Richard II. So, yeah. spoiler alert, that's what's coming in yeah, Richard yeah. II. He gets deposed. He was the first king to be deposed. Well, if you don't, if you don't, yeah, count, if you don't like, count the English kings, the, yeah, the since English William kings, yeah. the Conqueror, yes, he was the first um, one. So. And, and kind of set the stage for what would later become the rash he? of. I think there might, Stephen the first might have deposed. Somebody. Did you just make up a king? No, I'm pretty sure there was a Stephen the first. I think you're full of it. I, I don't know if he actually reigned. I think he, there was just like a brief civil war. But anyway, sorry, I, I interrupted you <laughs> where you were okay. going with an actual. No, thought. it was just it was just that this this kind of led into it, once you've deposed a king, it makes it easier to depose future kings. Yeah. So then, when you get to the Wars of the Roses, it's just like anybody who has a claim to the throne can th- overthrow the king and sit on the throne, and yeah. that's and what that happened. That's and, exactly yeah. what happened. So. Um, <laughs> It's kind of an important story, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, lesser produced. I think um, this leads quite nicely into what I was going to say. Um, there's a uh, those of you in the Edmonton area, and there aren't many of you, I'm mm-hmm. sure, listening to this podcast. But those of you who are, um, we are blessed with not one but two Shakespeare festivals in this yes. fair city, which we didn't even know about. <laughs> One of them we didn't even know about. They have produced Richard II. Yes. Uh, which is... The second one. The winter, the winter Shakespeare yes. so, Festival. So has, there's yeah. the, the summer Shakespeare Festival, which yeah. is the Free Will Festival. Free Will... Shakespeare um, Festival, yeah. yes. Um, which happens every summer, and they put on two plays, and it's wonderful. Yeah. This is the winter Shakespeare Festival, and they do site-specific plays um, at... Uh, this year, it's at um, this beautiful old church a couple of blocks away from our home actually so and they're doing a midsummer night's dream and julius caesar um but they did do richard ii which is fascinating to me because it's Mm -hmm. almost never produced it's it's one of those lesser produced plays as nathan said um so this was my way of segueing into (laughs) if you are in the edmonton area throughout the months of january and february um early february this year 2020 um or in the future if you come to Edmonton in the winter, um, we are a winter city. There are a lot of winter festivals that happen in this fair city, in this province. We are landlocked and snowbound for six <laughs> months of the year. So we've got to do something to entertain ourselves. Yeah. And one of them is this wonderful um, winter Shakespeare festival. So mm-hmm. definitely check them out if you're in the area. We will be. We've already bought our tickets. Um, so that's going to be really exciting. Before we sign off, we want to dedicate this episode to the Brit Lit Juniors at Hartford Union High School in Hartford, Wisconsin. Uh, We have it on good authority that you are listening to this podcast episode in order to learn how to create your own podcast episodes about some uncovered aspect of British literature that you haven't studied in the course of this semester. we hope we haven't led you astray. We've tried really hard to keep our conversation structured. Yes. 
We would also be very interested to hear what you come up with in the end with your podcast episodes. So if you wanted to send them to us, you can always find us, as anybody can, on social media. We are at The Bix Pod on Twitter, uh, facebook.com slash The Bix Pod, um, or you can email us at thebixpod at gmail.com. Yep. Um, we always love to hear from our listeners, but we would especially love to hear from these Britlit juniors um, what you come up with. We are going to learn a few things. If you send us your episodes, we would be ever so grateful um and be nice to your teacher that's all i'm gonna say there (laughs) you can find all our episodes on itunes spotify podbean youtube or wherever you get your podcast fix if you want to tell us what you think of shakespeare his plays poems or any of the topics we discuss we'd love to hear from you you can contact us on twitter that's at the bixpod on Facebook at facebook.com slash thebixpod or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.